Good morning. Today we are officially passing the halfway point in this series. So we made it so far. Um, we, we're continuing on, we're pressing on. And today we're going to start this week and next. This is where we really dig in now to those texts that uh, have been so controversial and I expect will be controversial for quite some time. But before we dive in today, I want to quickly, uh, but heart, in a heartfelt way, say thank you to all of you who have been passing along um, notes and encouragements and scriptures and questions, and especially those of you who have been praying. appreciate that so much. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, emails that I got um, was one where we got from, from Jade, actually. He, uh, he gave me one of the best definitions of a, of a Christian, or best, best description, I should say, of a Christian that I've ever seen. Here it is. This is one of my favorite descriptions of, of Christians that I've ever, ever seen. We are intriguingly likable weirdos who just might be worth listening to. Isn't that good? If we could do this, this would be a win, wouldn't it? If we could be intriguingly likable weirdos who just might be worth listening to. That, that was our M.O., as believers, as Christians, getting started. That was certainly true for the Jews. It was true for the early church. Um, Followers of Jesus looked very different than the culture they were part of. Um, Back in the day, we've talked about this many times before, back in the day, there was nothing like the Jesus movement. There was nothing like it. Christians were among the first people to care for folks who weren't a part of their immediate tribe or family. And they didn't just care for them. They fed the hungry. They clothed the poor. They cared for the sick. They looked out for the needs of the marginalized. And you would do this for your family. You would do this maybe for your tribe or your country. But Christians were the ones who took this to the world. And people thought they were crazy. Christians were also pioneers in public education and adoption and orphanages at a time when very few others would look out for other people's kids. You kidding me? It's crazy. They thought Christians were crazy. And Christians were at at the tip of the spear when it came to reconciliation between nations and races and people from different economic and social classes. People thought they were nuts. Why are you talking to them? Why are you mixing with them? They're the others. And how can you other them if you make them your friends? So people used to think Christians are weird. They do all these things that no one else does. You know, well, today, in areas where Christians have had influence, a lot of those things are normal, aren't they? We see hospitals, and we see orphanages, and we see all these, these things. But Christians are still considered weird on a whole lot of levels. You know, sometimes for the wrong reasons, because people are misrepresenting the faith. But, but sometimes we're trying to be true to Scripture, and we're looked at as weird. And one of the ways that we're still looked at as weird in our culture is how we approach sexuality. We're looked at as strange. Christians tend to self-impose restrictions on ourselves that other people don't. And right now, I'm not talking about imposing restrictions on other people. That's, that's not where I'm going with this. I'm talking about the ones we put on ourselves. People think we're weird. Why in the world do you just say no to a lot of things that other people say yes to? For example, in America, and specific to our, our topic today, in America, it has never been more accepted or encouraged to embrace a sexual identity or to act on sexual desires. It's, it's never been more uh, encouraged or, or embraced. And yet, over the last nine months, as I've been studying and pre- preparing for this series, I've come across so many testimonies from young men, young women, who are choosing to abstain 
from sexual activity with members of their, their same sex, even though they have a same-sex orientation. Why? Why would they do that? That's one of the questions that we're looking at today. So um, I encourage you to take out your notes. Let's dig in. Here we go. Controversial texts. Um, before we actually open our Bibles to it, I want to just give a, a little bit of a, of a running start here at the infamous Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 18.22 is where we're going to start our exploration of the controversial text because it is generally regarded as the first prescriptive biblical text to address homosexual behavior directly. I'll say that again. Leviticus 18.22 is generally regarded as the first prescriptive biblical text to address homosexual behavior directly. Now, you're going to notice if you haven't been with us for the last uh, three weeks, I'm going to be throwing a lot of stuff that we're just assuming you've listened. So I know that's not a fair assumption to make, but we just have to for the sake of time. So if you're some of these words like prescriptive, you're like, what do you mean by that? I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. But we've got a lot to cover um, over the next couple of weeks. But Leviticus 18.22, generally regarded as the first prescriptive biblical text to address homosexual behavior directly. And I want to mention, before we get any further, why I chose the word behavior there. The reason I chose the word behavior is because the Bible only addresses the behavior. Um, It doesn't address uh, same sexual orientation. And I think that's important to note. There is a lot of extremely passionate debate that's going on regarding where does um, sexual orientation come from, how, do you, how, does it, how does it arrive? Can it be changed? There's a whole lot of passionate discussion on that. And the, and the Bible doesn't speak to that much. Which is why before we even get into Leviticus 18, I want to I say if, if you've been taught that all same-sex orientation can be explained by abuse or explained by poor parenting or that it's simply a series of choices that a person has made, or if you've been taught that same-sex orientation, it can, can easily be undone if you pray the right prayer or... You get the right therapy. Um, if you've been taught these things, I would love to have a conversation with you. In fact, there's probably a whole lot of folks who would love to have a conversation with you because there's a whole other side, if that's what you've been taught, that would be very important for you to listen to. And it's very important because there's a whole lot of people who've been tremendously wounded. There's some people who've committed suicide over this. There are parents who just feel so much pain because they say, what did I do wrong? When it wasn't anything they did right or wrong. And there's so many individuals who grow up and they think, well, maybe if I prayed hard enough or if I, if I tried harder, the way I feel could be changed. And, and it's not that simple. So I want to just start there and, and say, you know, if you've, if you've been taught this, because in Christian circles, there's a lot of teaching. I was exposed to a lot of it. There's a lot of teaching. I would, I would like, love to have that conversation with you. No one has all the answers. No one does on all this. But this much I know, and we've said this all along in the series, we're in this thing together. We're in this thing called life together. And, and as, especially as, as followers of Jesus, we need to be extremely slow to make assumptions, right? Extremely slow to make assumptions, but very quick to offer support, very quick to offer encouragement. All right. Back to Leviticus. It's only, only the second time I've ever said that phrase. first time was at 9 o'clock this morning. Back to Leviticus. Here we go. And, and, I, and it's so important that we also include this before we actually open it up together. Leviticus is a difficult book to apply in our context. Extremely difficult book to apply in our context. It's one of the reasons it's so controversial. Leviticus was written originally in Hebrew. The Hebrew name for this book comes from its opening words. That's generally how those books were named in Hebrew, from their opening words. 
And here's the Hebrew name for the book along with its meaning. And I lo- along with its meaning, and I love the meaning here. It comes from the opening words. And he called. And he called. What a great book, huh? And he called. Leviticus is a revelation from God to the people that he called out as his own. It is a people that he had just rescued from slavery. And this takes place, I mean, this is in the shadow of Mount Sinai. This is early in their formation as a people. This is where God had, this is right after God's people received the Ten Commandments. It's within a month of them constructing this tabernacle where the presence of God would dwell. And in that context, God provides these instructions regarding how his people were to live. And one of the things you're going to see as you read this, because I'm going to encourage everyone, if you're going to ever opinionate on this verse or in this book, read the whole thing. Okay? Can I, can I get that from you as a covenant? If you're ever going to opinionate on this passage, you read the whole thing first. Okay? And if you do that, one of the phrases you're going to come across is this phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses. It appears more than 30 times in this book. The Lord spoke to Moses. There's an authoritative nature to this book. This is God speaking to his people. He's providing instructions to them in that context, at that place, at that time. So with that little bit of background, let's zoom in on this text. Let's open up our Bibles. Let's take a look at it. And what we're going to do is first just look at the verse. So if you're not familiar with it, you've seen it. And then what we're going to do is we'll start to explore the context around it today. Um, We ended up going a different direction slightly than I thought we were. Um, This text has even more to it than I thought there was going to be. And so what we'll do is we'll focus on this text today and it's, it's... context, and then we'll take those other texts and bring them to bear on this one next week, God willing. So here we go. Leviticus 18, completely out of context, just standing alone, says this. Uh, Leviticus 18:22. do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. So that's the passage right there. That's the verse that uh, is one of the ones that's so controversial. Now, one of the things, in fact, one of the reasons we're, we're even having this series is because so many people are handling this passage so badly on both sides, if there's some, a thing called both sides. They're handling this passage um, so badly. On one extreme, you have the people that do this thing where they, they just take that one verse out of the Bible without the context around it. They stick it up on their protest sign, and then they go and protest. And, and they say, you know, I've, I've literally heard a, a, a pastor say, um, the Bible says it, that settles it. Well, how many of you know it's, that, that can really be a misleading hermeneutic? Because you can take that, another verse uh, in the scripture somewhere else, and you can pull it out, and you can put it on a protest sign, and you can say the Bible says it, that settles it. But what if your verse is this one? And this is where a lot of people go on the other side. They say, all right, do the same thing with Leviticus eleven twelve. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. So if you're going to pull that verse out, the argument goes, you're going to pull that verse out, you're going to put it on your card, you're going to protest. Why don't you do the same thing in front of Red Lobster, right, with this one? I mean, isn't that, that's, that's literally, that's the argument, right? Now, they've, they've got a point. In fact, uh, Jack Black um, popularized this. I, I haven't seen it, but supposedly he made this little uh, thing called Prop 8 the Musical. And, uh, and he says this. He says, yeah. And he's referring specifically to, to uh, Leviticus 18.22. He says, you know, the Bible says the exact same thing about shrimp cocktail. Now, when, when, when someone like Jack Black says that, we can laugh, right? Because it's Jack Black. 
And we don't expect Jack Black to have this great theological insight. What was so hard for me um, over the last several months as I've been looking at this is the number of pastors who use the same hermeneutic, the number of authors that use the same hermeneutic, the number of theologians who did, the number of college professors who did. The reason that's hard for me to see that in print is because anyone who's read Leviticus from start to finish knows it's not that simple. It's not as simple as the person here who says, let me take this out, let me put it on my, my picket sign. It's not that simple. And anyone who's read Leviticus knows that. And it's also not as simple as, let me just dismiss it completely. Let me just dismiss it completely because it's in the book of Leviticus. It's not that simple. And you know what? This is something everyone's going to agree with here. And let me show you why it's not that simple. Because look, here, here, here's a passage. A set, here's some passages out of, oh, you know, yeah, let me write this down first. Thanks, Dory. Here's what I'm going to be giving an illustration of. Some instructions in Leviticus should be applied as written. So person here who says nothing, you can't apply anything from Leviticus, that's not true. Some should be applied as written. And again, you're all going to agree with this because, look, I think everyone's going to agree with some of these. This is out of Leviticus 19. Of all the sections of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 is a section that has the most apparently random version, verses altogether. In fact, it's one of the only sections of Leviticus where you see that. So I, I would offer to you, you know, which of these don't apply as written. And you don't have to say it all out. I'll just go through them quick for those who are listening. Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal, you shall not lie to one another. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Here's a couple more. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who quoted that one? Jesus. So I, I would imagine that, that there are at least one of these, you, you agree and say, you know what, that one still applies. So it's not as simple as we dismiss everything. But here's why it's not also as simple as you can just take any one of these and put it on your picket sign. Because you've got passages. Well, <laughs> thank you, Dory. Let me tell you, no, this is great. You actually, you're doing it right. Um, uh, because here's the problem. Some instructions in Leviticus should be applied in what? Principle. And it's not a word-for-word application. Some instructions in Leviticus should be applied in principle and not exactly as it's written. And again, let me give you an example of that. This is one that we've actually talked about before and we've tried to apply it in principle when we've talked about helping the poor and, and the oppressed. Um, this is out of Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for who? The poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, are, are, should every one of us apply this uh, literally? No. And even if we did, it wouldn't be that helpful. Many of our poor today live in our cities. They live in our suburbs. So you could leave the edges of the field somewhere outstate, and it's not going to help anybody. 
But the way we've talked about in the past, how do we apply this today? Does it apply? Of course it applies. You know, what might it look like for our family? We try to remember when we go shopping for groceries, leave some margin in your budget so you can buy something for the food shelf. For our family, it means we, we leave some margin in our budget. We don't spend it all on ourselves. We leave margin and we sponsor kids at a children's home. So there's ways to apply this. You're not applying it directly in, in word-for-word sense, but it still applies. It applies in principle. So are you seeing how this gets confusing really fast? Because what applies as written, what applies in principle? That's why this gets so challenging. This is why it gets so confusing. This is why there's so much controversy, especially when we're talking about prohibitions that affect someone's identity. It gets hard. It gets really hard. And that's where this word that we talked about last week comes in, hermeneutics, the H word, right? But, but it's how we approach things. How, how do we try to discern what does the Bible say, what is it not saying? We use hermeneutics. So today's hermeneutic, hermeneutical challenge is this, Leviticus 18.22, does it apply as written, does it apply in principle, or does it not apply at all? That's, that's what we're going to do our best to do in you know, 15, 20 minutes here today. Uh, we talked about last week how uh, what we're trying to do, the scale that we're using, is what's called a high view of Scripture. And I'm sure there's a whole lot of folks who say, this is an irrelevant question because I don't even care what the Bible says. I understand that. But for us who are trying to live by the commandments and Scriptures, um, it, it's, this is our standard for faith and conduct. So a high view of Scripture means you hold this as this is inspired Word of God. We really believe that, that this is... Um, God's speaking to us through these human authors. And so if you take a high view of Scripture, there's generally two positions that people land on. And here's one. I also wrote these in your notes, too. Position one is is this, that Leviticus 18.22 no longer applies. If you're using a high view of Scripture, they would say it doesn't apply because the prohibition, this commandment, is included among other behaviors, like the food prohibitions, that disciples of Jesus no longer abstain from. So that's... Part A, and then Part B, they would say, and we'll get to both of these here as, as we move along in the message. Um, the prohibition refers to idolatrous, exploitative forms of sexual activity, like homosexual prostitution, the pagan temples. They would say the reason this doesn't apply today, in addition to the fact that it's lumped with these other um, positions, is because it's not talking about sex between two men who love each other. It's talking about specifically temple prostitution. So that's position one. Position two is, is this. In position two, they, people would say it applies today because, A, the prohibition is included among other behaviors that disciples of Jesus still abstain from, and, B, because the language that's actually used includes both exploitative and non-exploitative forms of sexual activity. So this will not be the definitive answer to this, but what I want to try to do is to help you understand why people arrive, especially at position two, because that's the one that's harder for people to understand the direction our culture is going here. So let's, let's, let's dig in. Um, we mentioned last week, if you're going to do hermeneutics, you start by zooming in. And the step one that we gave you was what? What was the step one that we gave you? Do you remember? What's that? Read the text. Yeah, read the text. And, and yep, very good. Read the text and then compare the translations. Now, I'm not going to read through all these translations. I'm just going to quickly put them on the screen. Um, it, it, I just don't like how it would feel to read all of these, uh, quite frankly. Uh, but what you can start to see, and, and you can look this all up on BibleGateway.com, New International Version, English Standard Version, New Living, King James. Let's flip to another slide. 
uh, New Revised Standard, New American Standard, Holman Christian Standard Bible, the message. What you start to see is if you compare translations, the controversy isn't so much on the language. There's general agreement among scholars that the language is, you know, what, what we see here. The controversy then comes down to the context. Okay, here's what it says, but what does it mean? And how do we apply it? So that's what we're going to spend most of our time on today. Now, the reason I told you that, the reason I, as strong as I can, want to encourage you uh, to read the whole thing from start to finish is as you do, you start to see that this isn't a bunch of random instructions that are just kind of grouped together where, where one thing pops out here and another thing pops out here and it goes from food to sexual activity to, to these other things, you'll start to see there's some order to it. And here's one outline that uh, one of my resources used, the ESV Study Bible. I'm not saying this is the right outline to do. I'm just offering this as one example of how people have noticed there are categories in this book. There, there's, there's sections in this book. The way they outlined it here in, in the ESV Study Bible was it starts off with five major offerings. Then there's how you handle those offerings. Then there's the establishment of the priesthood. Then there's specific laws on cleanliness and uncleanliness at chapter 11 and uh, through 15 there. There's the Day of Atonement ritual. There's a handling and meaning of blood. That was very significant in that culture. The um, call to holiness. Then there's a section on holy times, seasons, festivals. And then there's a section on blessings and cursings. And then on vows and dedication. So as you look at the, at the book as a whole, there are these categories within it, these distinct sections in the book. And one of the things you start to see is even the language reflects this a little bit. Um, one of the things that you wouldn't notice if you were just reading in English, if you had the NIV, which is what we quoted from, you would see that a word like detestable is used in chapter 18 for a number of sexual practices, and then it's also used for a number of food choices in chapter 11. And so I've heard people say it's just the same. That's not fair to, to say. Here's an example of, of the Hebrew. Chapter 11 deals primarily with the food restrictions. Chapter 18 deals with a number of sexual um, uh, prohibitions. And so there, there's the Hebrew. You begin to see it appears as though the book of Leviticus, you've got some different categories that are, that are emerging. And they're not just kind of throwing a bunch of random things together, but what they're starting to do is they, they're talking about this, and they talk about this, and then they talk about this, and then they talk about that. There's some exceptions, but as a whole, that's what it generally does. Now, the chapter that we'll be looking at today, um, chapter 18, deals almost exclusively with sexuality. It doesn't include teaching about food or tattoos or fabric or plants. Uh, and here's how it opens. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up uh, Leviticus. Now we're going to look a little more at the, the context of chapter 18. Let's look at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, I'm referring to numbers. If you're not familiar with the Bible, um, our Bibles have these numbers that just help us identify different verses and sections. Were these numbers there in the original Hebrew? No. But neither are these numbers arbitrary. It's not like people just threw a number here. Um, generally, the numbers correspond to different sections. And one of the things you'll see, especially with 18, 19, and 20, one of the reasons we ask you to, to bring your Bibles with you is you can see that there's introduction statements. There's a clear break from what came before. I also, I don't know if I mentioned this yet, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack of them at those tables on either side, and they're for you. They're for you to, to have as, as a free gift. You don't have to sign anything or, or let us know. All right, so here's how 18 opens. It opens with this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, 
I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they did do in Egypt, where, the, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. You must not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. For the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Now, you might have noticed in your Bible that they may have capitalized Lord like we did here. If you were to do a direct translation, it would not be a direct translation from the Hebrew to the word Lord. In Hebrew, they used the holy name for God, a name that's considered so holy that, that um, they'll substitute the word the Lord in readings often, and they'll substitute actually in the text because of they don't want to mispronounce it or, or offend those who hold it in such high regard. So it's using the holy name of God here. So there's, there's an authoritative nature here and in other sections that, that we see with this text. And in it, the God of Israel, he's calling us to live differently. You see this in multiple sections of this book. He's calling us to live differently. He's calling us to follow his laws and his decrees. And the next several verses, verses 6 through 19 in this chapter, all deal with different forms of incest. That's what comes next, 6 through 19. We won't, won't read that. Uh, there's not much controversy there. But we will take a look here at 18, uh, 9, verses 19 through 23, because here's the immediate context of the verse we read earlier. And here's again where a lot of the controversy comes in. So, and these are the ones you'll hear quoted a lot of times if you, if you look into this stuff. All right, here we go. Uh, Leviticus 18, we'll go 19 through uh, 20. What did I say? 23. Do not, do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. And number 20, and, uh, verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to the animal and have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Okay, so there's the immediate context then of this passage. And there's even structure within the structure. One of the things you see in chapter 18 is that, that um, people have pointed out is this. There's even a grouping uh, within Leviticus 19. So, I mean, within Leviticus 18. So 18 uh, is, a, is a section, and then within that section, there's even a grouping. You have the three different forms. You have three different forms of heterosexual intercourse that are prohibited. Then you have uh, the section we'll come back to. And then you have two forms of non-heterosexual intercourse. And when I was first reading, I wasn't thinking in these terms. And I was thinking, boy, that offering your children to Molech seems completely out of place. But then you look, when you zoom back, you look at the, the structure and you say, no, it's not completely out of place because having a child is um, the result of heterosexual intercourse. So there is a, a tie in that way. As well as some people would say, by offering your child to Molech, you would be doing that in a pagan temple. And there would be some, some tie-ins. They're possibly prostituting them. So there's even some structure there. Now, I hope my point in this entire exercise right now is not to, that you can recall all this, but to just let you know that if you hear somebody say that Leviticus, or imply that Leviticus is just random, that it's one text to another, at least now you have a more informed uh, awareness that, that it's not that simple. Another thing that's, that's not simple, and we've spent a whole week on this some time ago, is people often say, well, isn't sin, sin? Well, yes and no. 
And, and that's a tricky one. That's a whole other lesson for another time. But, but uh, in the Scripture, different sins have different punishments sometimes ascribed to them, especially in the Old Testament. And so what punishments are ascribed you know, to, to these prohibitions? Well, specifically from 18, we had six different forms of um, sexual prohibition there. And five of the six, just two chapters later in uh, chapter 20, get the highest form of punishment that Israel had. And that was the death penalty. And if you were to look in the scripture elsewhere, and this is important, I think, for, for me at least to do this exercise, I thought, well, what else is in there? What else, if you go to other places of the Bible, what else has a penalty like that? And um, here, are some ex- here are at least most of the examples that, that we could find. And as you're looking through this, again, the point is not let's go look for people and apply the death penalty for these things. That's, that's, that's not the point here at all. It's just to, to take a look and to say, boy, does this list seem to be things that appear to apply today or things that we dismiss? You'll notice that um, the food prohibitions aren't on there. Tattoos aren't on there. Wearing a seed made of or a garment made of two different types of material is not on there. Here are the things that are on there. There's cursing, showing contempt for a judge or priest, striking, cursing, disobeying a parent, cursing or disobeying the king, cursing God, stealing devoted objects, um, meaning ones that were divine, divide, uh, specifically God said don't touch, then they lied about it, they placed it within one's personal belongings. There were specific boundary violations, in particular touching Mount Sinai when God's activity was there, outsiders trespassing near the temple. Uh, what else we got? Sabbath breaking, witchcraft or, witchcraft or sorcery, worship of a foreign god, idolatry. You have one more slide on this? False prophecy, specific cases of pre or extramarital sex, rape, kidnapping, abducting people for slavery, false witness in capital cases, and neglecting defense in an animal that repeatedly gores or kills humans. I don't expect that, that everyone in this room is going to land at position two. And, and that's, I don't expect that. But I would hope I would hope that as you, as you look at, at this, even this real short exploration into Leviticus, that you could understand why some people would say it appears as though Leviticus 18.22 is in a different category that I can't easily dismiss. I would at least hope you could, re, you could come to a place where you could understand that opinion or that uh, position. Well, the one thing we haven't really dealt with yet is, well, what about what some people say about does it only apply to temple prostitution? Is it that what God was saying was, is this a specific thing that you should not do because the only people that are practicing this are doing so in, in temple prostitution in the land that you're about to go into? Uh, a man named Justin Lee is an example of someone who argued for that in his book called Torn. Uh, this is a book that I ended up recommending to, uh, to our elders. I recommended to our, all of our directors. In fact, I asked them all to read it. Um, the reason I did that was because his personal story is so helpful. His personal story, he, he describes what it was like growing up as a Christian who was gay. Um, but his hermeneutics, his hermeneutics are, are not solid. That's why we didn't recommend this as one of the books for everyone, because of the way he approaches Scripture itself. And he's one of the folks who advocates for, for this position. And what he, he does, and the reason I'm, I'm not just trying to pick on Justin Lee here, but I saw this happen in, in a couple different sources where they give a misleading statement. And what Justin Lee did in his book is he said, hey, it's not just... M- myself and people who believe in me 
believe what I do, who hold this, that hold that this is really about temple prostitution. He said people on both sides think that. And then he quoted a guy, Robert Gagnon. He said, look, Robert Gagnon is a guy, I don't agree with him on most of his stuff, but he is the number one expert in this area. And, and so here's what he says, and he agrees with me. And, and then he gives even a quote, direct quote from one of his books, Robert Gagnon, uh, homosexual prostitution appears to have been the primary form in which homosexual intercourse was practiced in Israel. But here's the thing. I have that book. And I looked up his resource, you know, in, in his quote. And that's not what he says. He takes a passage out of context. And what Robert Gagnon actually does is he argues the other position. He argues for position two. And he says, while that was certainly going on, it wasn't the only form of sexual um, expression that was happening between uh, uh, men. And if the author wanted to say this is about temple prostitution. He had different words he could have used. Here, here are some Hebrew words that, they ha- that the author could have used. The author chose to use the words for male, which is the inclusive, hey, this is referring to all men. He, if it was to refer to, if the author's intent was to say, hey, men, you should not be exploiting boys, they, they could have written it that way. If the intent was to say, hey, you should not exploit your neighbor, meaning, which was happening back then in war, I guess in, in this time and in this place, often soldiers would be raped as a way to degrade them. And so if they wanted to use that language, they had language for that. And there was a specific word, there was a specific word in Hebrew for homosexual called prostitute. Again, I'm not doing this to pick on him. I'm not doing this as an author. I'm not doing this to, to say, see, this proves position two. What I'm trying to do is to say, you know, if you hear one side, make sure you're listening to both sides. And, and you're really trying to search that out and that you're doing your fact-checking. And again, I'll say it one more time, the other reason I'm, I'm doing this is, is with the hopeful expectation that you'll see that those who are, saying, are holding position two aren't just doing it because they don't know better. There's a lot of people, men and women, who we explore the scriptures, we're trying to be faithful to it, we're not lo- trying to read into it, we're just trying to see what it says, and it appears to have a prohibition that hasn't been overturned. A, a quick summary of, 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 of why we may hold that position. Uh, it appears, that the prohibition appears in the book of the Bible where the language is very prescriptive and authoritative. Scholars agree on the translation. It's not grouped together with eating shellfish or getting a tattoo or wearing clothing made of two different types of material. It's grouped with five other sexual prohibitions that I can't condone as a pastor four of which warrant the death penalty when they were issued, and then the language appears to be more inclusive than exclusive. And I, I could imagine that there's some folks up there that might just look at me and say, well, easy for you to say. Easy for you to say. You're heterosexual. And that's why I want to refer back to where I started today and to say there are men and women who have a same-sex orientation who are Christians who arrive at the same place as well. And Wesley Hill is one of them. And, and if you wonder why would a guy like Wesley Hill, well-educated, why would he chose, choose celibacy? I'd encourage you to read his book and see why it was that, that he made that choice, knowing that for him, this is what it would mean. You know, and, and my hope is, you know, even, even beyond that, just on a broader sense, I mean, when you go to the scriptures, one of the things that's so clear, another reason I want you to read Leviticus it's because you're going to realize this isn't about gays. 
And it seems like so often when Leviticus is quoted, it's just quoted for, for one, well, actually there's only two verses in there on that. Instead of looking at Leviticus, Leviticus speaks to every one of us. It speaks to every one of us. And if you read through, you're going to find things in there that you're like, oh, that's true for me. In fact, I, I was thinking about um, way back when the movie Brokeback Mountain came out and it caused such an uproar because it had a love scene between gays. And I think, well, how is that different than almost every romantic comedy ever? Or almost any action movie. Or almost any, you, you, you look at the scriptures, and you're going to find that they speak to all of us, and all of us are going to be asked to pick up things. And why is it, why is it that, that God's people would, would choose these prohibitions? You know, why? And for some, it means giving up a career. Some, it means saying no to family. Some, it literally, in places all around the world, it means laying down your life. It means prison. It means all these things. Why would anyone choose that? We choose it because we believe there's one God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's our maker. He's our sustainer. He is the author of everything that is good. And in the fullness of time, he sent his one and only son. And he can be trusted. And when he asks us to do things that, that, that may even mean literally laying down your life. There's been times where I've literally put myself in harm's way because I felt this is what I'm supposed to do. When we do that, we can do it because we can trust God. We were purchased at a great price, we read. A great price. Again, another reason I want you to read Leviticus. The opening chapters are like a horror movie. They're like a horror movie. There's so much blood. There's all these sacrifices, and then you put the blood on people. It's horrific. And, and there's all kinds of different understandings of why that would be. I think one of the reasons it is, is to sear in our collective consciousness as God's people the seriousness of disobedience to a holy God. And yet, we've got this God who gave his life. He was the perfect sacrifice he can be trusted. At least that's what we believe. And we believe he was purchased. We've been purchased at this great price, and we're told then to honor God with our bodies. And it is an honor to honor God with our bodies. So I hope you understand. This was given in the spirit that, that I, I do my best to try to present it. I hope you understand why we put this week four instead of week one. Because we are in this together. We're all in this together, and, and we would invite you now today, invite the worship team to come up. We would invite you to join us at the Lord's table, and we don't, we don't invite you to do this flippantly because the Bible says don't do this flippantly, but, but for those who can sincerely pray and say, God, I want to offer you my life. You offered yours first. I offer you mine in return. If you can pray with sincerity the prayers that we're going to lead us all through, that we all lead us through every month, we would love for you to join us. One of the things we say here at the church is the only person that's going to keep you from the Lord's table is you. So we'd encourage you to, to pray these prayers with us today. And then the way um, it works here at our church, if you are new, is, uh, is that uh, we'll have first the communion servers will come forward and we'll serve them. And then there will be a team on that side and a team on this side. And then instead of ushers coming and saying, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, we ask for it to be a deliberate decision on your part. That instead of ushers telling you, we ask that uh, 
when you so choose that you stand up and come and receive communion, and then I'll go back to your chairs. And during that time, we'll be singing some songs. Also, during that time, we'll have people that have um, these lanyards, these purple lanyards, that would love to pray with you about anything. And we'd love to pray with you. So if you'd like to have that, that's an option as well. All right. Well, let's, let's pray. We'll start by praying together um, some prayers that have been handed down to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. I don't know if it was with you guys or with the 9 o'clock, but at one of the services it hit me last time we did communion that we haven't been doing the prayer of absolution. That's the most important part, right? It comes out, found in um, 1 John chapter 1, verses 9-10. through 10. It, Here's this promise to us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to con- uh, forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can leave this place clean and righteous in God's sight. So let's uh, let's. Let me pray to that end and then invite you to pray a prayer of the Lord. Father, thank you for that great invitation. That great invitation that, that we, we couldn't, God, we couldn't bring enough sacrifices to you. There's not enough goats and sheep and cattle on a million hills to do that. So we thank you, Lord, that you did what we couldn't do and you lived that perfect life. And so, Father, in, 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 in response to that act of amazing grace, we give ourselves fully to you. And we don't understand, and we're going to need your help, and we're going to need to help your people, and we we know all that. So we throw ourselves um, uh, before you, knowing that you are good, that you didn't spare anything in reaching out to us and loving us first. So Lord, help us now to love you back. And as one last act of solidarity, um, as, uh, as people who are united by your death and resurrection, who bear your name, we pray a prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is a kingdom.